Good morning. One of the things we've become keenly aware of over the last couple of months and actually now getting on two years is there's a cost to saving lives. It's a high cost. When someone becomes ill or infirmed or sick, one of the biggest concerns they have is how much is this going to cost me? And you can't really put a price on life, can you? I mean, when you're ill or a loved one is sick, you'll, you'll pay anything, really, just about any cost to get them well again. You know, there's a high cost to saving lives. And it's true when it comes to ministry. It's true that when we share the gospel with others, there's a cost. And it's not cheap. It, it, it will cost you something. It may cost you your comfort or your convenience. It may even cost you your life to share the gospel. But it's so vitally important that we recognize that saving lives for Jesus Christ, bringing people to Jesus, saving them for eternity, is the great work of the gospel. It's why we're here. And really, could the price discourage anyone from paying it? I think we have to ask ourselves the question, as God calls us to share this message of salvation with others, are we willing to pay it? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask that as we just take this moment this morning to be in your word, to fellowship together, to worship, to to thank you for all you're doing and all you've done in our lives, knowing what you will do will also be a blessing. We ask now, in the name of Jesus, that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us to step up to not shrink away in a cowardly way, but to stand up and follow the call that you have for our lives, knowing that it may cost us a great deal. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to recap us a little bit, last week we saw that Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy were called into Macedonia. Paul had received a vision. And in that vision, there was a Macedonian man saying, come and help us. And so they made their way from Troas, they sailed across the Aegean Sea, made their way to what is northern Greece, Macedonia, and they ministered in the city of Philippi. Things went well there, but it wasn't without its price, it wasn't without its cost. Paul and Silas were beaten, severely flogged, imprisoned, and ultimately let go because of their status as Roman citizens. As we get into this next section here, As we look at what God was doing and is doing in the lives of his people at this time, the pronouns change. By that I mean it says in the first part of chapter 17 in the book of Acts, that when they had passed, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, before we go any further, the reason I mention the pronouns is Luke is the individual writing this book, this history. And he's been speaking in the first person or or, or as a group, he's been speaking we and us and and, and, and in that way. And, And now, all of a sudden, it's they. And from this, you can see what happened is very simple. Luke stayed behind in Philippi. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, stayed in Philippi to minister to this newly formed fellowship. And he was probably the man in Paul's vision. 
And so now there's this man who's separated from the team. There's a team of four, and one of them has already stayed behind. We'll see that more will eventually. And, of course, Philippi is a city we're familiar with, and they're moving on from Philippi. But this is a place that Paul returned to on his third missionary journey. He actually returned twice there. And Luke later rejoined Paul on his final visit to Philippi after having spent several years ministering there. So Luke is the chosen vessel to pastor the churches and church in Philippi. And we know that. There's a cost to that. There's a cost to that. It's not always easy. In most cases, it's very difficult. They paid a high price in Philippi to do ministry. Of course, later on, Paul wrote to the Philippians, thanking them for their generosity in meeting his needs. They were a good church, a very good church. But now we find ourselves, as I've mentioned already, in Acts chapter 17, Paul and the rest of his team are now traveling from Philippi through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they make their way, as we'll see, to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. There wasn't a Jewish synagogue in Philippi, but there was in Thessalonica. Where there was a Jewish synagogue, Paul's custom was to go into, as it says here, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, that is for three weeks, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you, he is the Christ, he said, and some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Very successful ministry there in, in Thessalonica after having had a very successful but challenging ministry in Philippi. You would think, oh, maybe things will be easier in this city. No, not at all. In fact, as Paul and his team arrived at Thessalonica to proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogue, they recognized there would be challenges. They didn't know what they would be. As I've said already, there is a cost for saving lives. When you step out on the mission field to do the work of God, you know it's going to cost you something. And not just the plane fare, not just the airfare, not just what it costs, the trip in terms of money or time. But ministry takes its toll on you emotionally and physically. And then, of course, we have enemies and those that oppose us who are trying to harm us, maybe even kill us, to silence us. So they make their way through these cities, and Amphipolis and Apollonia were cities along the way. And then Thessalonica, they make it there. It's a large and populous free city of the Thermaic Bay. It is 37 miles from the last place, so they would take about 30 to 37 miles a day, making their way from each city. And they didn't stop in those other cities, but they felt called to stop and minister in Thessalonica. It was a, an influential commercial city. It was right along the main trade route to Rome. So there were a lot of people there. And it was the capital of the second division of Macedonia, and it was the residence of the Roman governor. So you can imagine, it was an influential city. It was named originally Thermae, but it was rebuilt by a man by the name of Cassander, the son of Antipater, and he named the city after his wife. But what's interesting, and I've shared this with you before, that this was a very Greek area. Obviously, it's northern Greece, Macedonia. But it was also an area that had given birth and rise to Alexander the Great. Philip was named, or excuse me, Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Now, Thessalonica was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. 
That was her name. And even though it was named after, by the husband after the wife, this woman would have been influential. This woman would have been someone everyone was familiar with. In fact, her father, Philip of Macedon, named her Thessalonica because it means victory against the Thessalians, a group of people that he conquered. He named her after receiving news of her birth on the day of victory. So you see, this is a very Greek area. There's a lot of culture. There's a, the, the people there are, are very, very much remembering hundreds of years earlier when there was an empire ruled by Alexander the Great. And so they go into this culture, very different than the culture they're accustomed to. But they go to the synagogue because, you see, the synagogue in Thessalonica was a chief synagogue in that part of Macedonia. It was a large synagogue. And it's interesting because Paul addressed the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue in Thessalonica because Greeks and Jews would gather there. Sometimes there were Greeks that had converted to Judaism. There were other Greeks that just attended synagogue. I think it's very common in a house of worship. You'll sometimes have people that just show up. They may not be a part of the fellowship. They just sort of show up and see what's going on or they're interested. You have others that commit. But certainly the Jews would have been easier to reach than the Greeks in this culture, given Paul's background as a Jew, in fact, as a former Pharisee. So what Paul did was he addressed the Jews and the Greeks in this synagogue, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ there for three Sabbath days. Now, that's big because Paul usually would get one message in and then be persecuted within a very short period of time. Now, in Philippi, they were there for some time, several days, before they had an altercation with a slave girl who was possessed by a demon, and that's what caused the problem there. But now they're going into the synagogue. Now they're going to have to deal with the Jews. And any time that Paul has dealt with his fellow Jews in terms of sharing the gospel, any single time he did that or does that, there's problems. There's a cost. And he's willing to pay it. Clearly he is, because he does over and over again. Now the Pharisees, the Pharisees of which Paul was a former Pharisee, had established the synagogues. They were their leaders. So as a rabbi and a former Pharisee, Paul had the authority to speak to them. He could show up and easily be given the opportunity to address the entire synagogue. He taught them from the Hebrew Scriptures. What did he teach them? That Jesus is the Messiah. Amen? In Greek, the Christ. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. He told them this. He reasoned with them. He explained God's word to them. He proved to them that Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He proved it, and he proclaimed that Jesus had fulfilled the messianic prophecies. That's what we read. What a wonderful opportunity. When you have a foundation to build on, you can begin to share the gospel with people who know who Jesus is or perhaps know the scriptures about the Messiah. You can go in and you can share the gospel in a way that you can't with Greeks or Gentiles that had never heard it before. We'll see that as Paul continues to minister in this part of the world, he goes into places like Athens and Corinth where they really didn't have a frame of reference. And the Jews did, but the Gentiles didn't. And it's interesting because oftentimes, most of the time, Paul was more successful in reaching the Gentiles than he was the Jews. So there is a cost, and one of the costs that we pay when we share the gospel is that people may not like us. I know that's a horrible fate, isn't it? Today, it seems that if someone doesn't like you, it's about the worst thing that could possibly happen. I've seen people, maybe not in tears, but greatly distraught because someone they like unfriended them or didn't like them or didn't like their video or their Instagram post. It's amazing to me how much affirmation we seem to need in our culture today. 
If you participate in a sport, but you don't get a trophy at the end of the year, it was a waste of time, right? So they have these little, what we call, participation trophies. And we've gotten to the place where we can't do anything unless someone's patting us on the back. So imagine having to do something that will cause everyone else to dislike you. Or, as we say today, cancel you. Imagine having to share a message that might cause you to be accused of being hateful or a racist or white supremacist. By the way, apparently in the news today, anyone can be a white supremacist. That seems to be the tag they throw on anybody they don't like. doesn't matter if you're white or black or Asian. doesn't matter. Hispanic. doesn't matter. If they seem to think that you're a person they don't like, they tag you with this, you know, somehow you're a Klansman. I mean, does anyone see through this? Can I hear an amen? amen? Just tag your enemies with the worst possible thing you can say about them. Like, like the, the typical line, which I haven't heard in a little while, is like, he's worse than Adolf Hitler. Remember, you hear this all, he's worse than Adolf Hitler. Really? Worse than Adolf Hitler? Really? Think that that might ex- be a little exaggeration? People don't like us as Christians. The world hates us. Wait a minute. Is there a scripture that tells me that? Did Jesus share something about the world hating us? It hated him. It hates us. So what I'm trying to do today as we go through this text is show you that you are going to say things and do things and believe things and live things that are going to cause others to dislike you, maybe even despise you. The question is, are you willing to pay the price? Because there is a high cost for saving lives. And if you're going to reach people in this culture today, you can't be a coward. When I look at the word woke, you know what woke means? It means you're asleep. Because woke would be a way of saying, well, I don't want to say anything that, you know, might offend somebody. There's two people living in North Dakota that might be offended by this use of this word, so I don't want to use it. And then if somebody calls you out on it, you have to apologize to everyone, including the Pope. When are we going to get some guts And stand up for what we believe. When are we going to realize that the goal isn't to be liked? Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy understood this. Now we're not trying to offend anyone. We don't hate people. We don't hate sinners. We love them so much we tell them the truth about their sin. But you, 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 brothers and sisters, you have to understand this. There is truth in this world today. And God's truth, if preached properly with boldness and courage, will invoke the wrath of the radical left. It will invoke this woke crowd, this, this, this crowd of people who seem to think that it's racist to love people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know. I don't really worry about what other people think. That much should be clear by now. But what I do concern myself with is that there are people that are dying and going to hell. How much am I willing to pay to save the life of someone I love? What's too high a cost? You know, I mean, sadly, if you're a pet owner, you know, I, I know people who own pets and we own pets growing up. And there does come a point where you say, and, and I know I'm going to offend somebody, so I might as well just do it. $3,000 to save the cat's life, 20 bucks new cat. Or am I the only one that will say that out loud? And of course, we love our pets. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't. 
But I can tell you something. There's never going to be a time where I look at someone I love as a human being and say something like that. There's never going to be a time where I say, no, nah, that's too much money. Let, let them pass. Let them die. That's just not going to happen. Yet there are many today as Christians who are willing to not share the gospel and not pay that price because the price for sharing it is too high. And I might suggest to you that saving someone in this life is important, but saving them for the next is way more important. So let's just put in perspective. That's what I like to do. I like to try to give you perspective so that you'll understand that you really shouldn't be all that concerned about paying a cost if that cost is to save the life of someone else. Now, if you get in trouble for being a bozo and sharing your own opinion online or saying things you shouldn't say, then that's on you. But if you invoke the wrath of our culture for standing up for the gospel and what you believe in the person of Jesus Christ and sharing that truth with others, so be it. Can I hear an amen? amen. It's the way it is. I can't imagine being in, in, a, in an army or an armed service and going out there and saying, well, I really don't want to fire my gun, so I'm just going to kind of hang out back here because I might get shot. So as I look at what they did, I'm so impressed. I'm inspired by their willingness to pay the price. But it is a little bit intimidating to think you might have to pay it. Look what he did. He went there boldly preaching the gospel. And what happened? In verse 4, we read it already. It says that he was well-received by some of the Jews and many of the God-fearing Greeks. Those would be those Greeks that attended synagogue because they were God-fearing. They were interested in who God is. They may not be Jews, but they were Greeks. They were God-fearing Greeks. Now, those Jews that were persuaded from the scriptures, we're told, joined Paul and Silas. Well, that's a blessing, amen? And then a large number of Greeks, including some prominent women, also joined them. Now, here's the thing about why prominent women are mentioned among the Greeks. Greek culture encouraged women to have a prominent role in public life. And oftentimes, as we know from uh, my big fat Greek wedding, the Man is the head, <laughs> the woman is the, the neck, she turns the head. We're all familiar with that probably by now, but it's true. The influence of women in our culture is significant, but in the Greek culture, it was also significant. Not as much in the Jewish culture. But here we're told that a large number of these very influential women came to faith. And I like that because it means that Paul was not a person who looked at one gender or the other, and there are two, and said, oh, I don't like women. He's been accused of being a misogynist. It's a, a word that basically means you hate women for some reason. How could that possibly be true? He ministered to women in Philippi. He ministered to women here. He'll minister to women throughout his ministry. The important thing to know is that God uses men and women, amen? Not just men and not just women. God uses all people, and he ministered to them. And I like what it says there. It says, and not a few prominent women. So they, they joined Paul and Silas. They joined the church. They became disciples of Jesus Christ. Some Jews, some Greeks, and influential Greek women. I would say at this point, if I just stopped there and we just stopped our study, wow, what a successful church plant. And, that's the, and they lived happily ever after moment. Except that after verse 4 comes what? Verse 5. 
And we read in verses 5 through the first part of verse 10 about the severe opposition in Thessalonica that his team, Paul and his team, experienced. In fact, so much so they were forced to leave the city. Let's read it. In verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Now, that's not the Jews that were following them. Those were the Jews that rejected the gospel. And it says the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Oh, that's where Portland got the idea from. Devil uses the same tactics. Well, they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. And they were all defying Caesar's decree, saying... That there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And then we read in the first part of verse 10 that as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. It was going so well, and it oftentimes does, and then all of a sudden the opposition shows up. Because when God shows up, the devil, he might be a few steps behind, but he's right there. He's ready to try to tear down what God is doing. So what happens? All of these people are coming to faith. They're saving lives. Now the cost. Now the bill comes in. Now you get to look at it and see, what did it cost these men in order to be able to do what God had called them to do? We're not fond, as pastors many times, of telling people that giving their lives to Christ will cost them their lives. We don't like to tell people that. What we usually tell them is, well, if you give your life to Christ, you'll know peace, and you will. You'll experience God's grace, and you will. You'll receive his mercy, you will. You'll be blessed, absolutely. But then we stop there. We don't give what we call full disclosure. We don't go on to say, and if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll find it. Kind of makes me wish there was a scripture that Jesus mentioned that said that very thing. And of course, there is. You have to understand the call to discipleship is the call to carry your cross. This is the point where people leave the church. Please don't. This is the point when the the bill comes due and you realize what this thing is going to cost you. Everything. Now, I like to tell people that because here's what happens. The people that don't come back aren't willing to pay the price. The people who do are. And I would love our fellowship to be filled with all kinds of people, but one type of people that probably won't be comfortable here are those that aren't interested in paying that price. Because we're all called to pay it. I know it's not good news. I don't like it either. I'm not saying this is my favorite thing to say. It's just the truth. And saying the truth, telling the truth today, wow, that puts me in a minority of people. I'm not trying to discourage you. In fact, I'm trying to encourage you. So that when you do share the gospel, and people don't like you, you'll be filled with joy for being given the opportunity to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, like the early apostles were in the book of Acts. See, if I don't tell you up front that this is what's going to happen, you're going to shrink away when it does. And if you don't, listen, today, today, if you don't think that you're going to pay a high price 
for sharing the gospel in this culture, then you really need to think again. You are. So what do you do? Well, Pastor Tim, we're just going to stay down in our foxhole and keep our head low and try not to get our, our you know, brain shot out. We're just going to do our best to, you know, not, don't make any ripples. Don't, don't say anything that might be considered offensive. You don't want to get canceled. You won't be able to post videos on YouTube. You know, you, you won't be able to, to spout your thinking on Twitter. You know, you'll lose everything. You know, I, I remember before social media, I lived just fine. And I don't even post my thoughts online. But I'm just saying, I remember what life was like before we had all of these wonderful things or not so wonderful things. And you know what? We got up every day. We lived our lives. We could live for God and honor him. And you can do the same today. If we lose some of these quote-unquote privileges or opportunities because we open our mouths and say the truth, so be it. They didn't have social media back in the first century. But somehow they were able to turn the world upside down for Christ. Or should I say right side up? So I'm just trying to pump you up a little bit. I'm trying to encourage you today because you're going to get it. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you. It's going to happen. If you share the gospel with your boss at work and then your boss doesn't like it, you might get fired. In today's culture, it could very well happen. So what are you going to do? There's a high cost for saving lives. Back to our text. Why did the Jews do this? This is very insightful. Why did they do this? We're told they were jealous. Have you ever considered that the people that dislike us are jealous? What are they jealous of exactly? You know, it could be a lot of different things, but I think one of the things they hate about us is we're happy because clearly the mob out there isn't. We might have peace and clearly they don't. We know the truth and they believe a lie. They're under the control and the dominion of Satan. He's pulling all the strings, and we're set free in Christ. And maybe they look at our lives, and maybe they look at the things we do and the lives we influence and, and the, the relationships that we have, and their reaction is like, I hate that guy. Why? I don't know. <laughs> they don't need to have a reason. The truth of the matter is that you will be hated for his namesake. So, they were jealous. I were probably jealous. I see Paul and Silas come in, and now all of a sudden all these people are following them. You know what's really sad? When pastors behave this way? When ministry leaders behave this way? They see a move of God's Holy Spirit, and they don't like it. They're threatened by it. <clears throat> so what do they do? They try to squash it. They badmouth people, write bad reviews. A lot of times that's just jealousy. Well, his book sold 20 more copies than mine did. I don't have a book, so you don't have to worry about buying it. So here's the thing. I really feel strongly about this. You have to expect that people are going to dislike you for what we're doing. And you have to know that some people are going to be jealous of what God does through your life. So what do they do? They start a riot. Oh, excuse me, a peaceful protest. I'm sorry. They were afraid of losing their power and their influence. At the end of the day, that's the truth. The small minority of malcontents, bad characters, as it says here in our text today, bad characters from the marketplace, they're afraid that one day they may be irrelevant. What they don't know is they already are. The only power and influence they have is that which we give them. So who cares what they say? Do you understand? Who cares? 
Well, they were blinded to the truth of the gospel. Why? Because they refused to believe. That's what happens. You refuse to believe the gospel, you're blinded to it. You can't see the truth. So they chose to reject the gospel and to poison the minds of others against them. You've got to figure, if, if, if someone's so adamantly opposed to something they don't believe in, and they go to great lengths to oppose it, it must have struck a nerve. Would you agree? I mean, if you really feel strongly about something, you'll respond. But if you don't care, you're like, ah, who cares? They obviously care. They obviously feel strongly about the things we believe and don't want to believe them because the reaction of our enemies is very passionate. So you understand what's going on here. Well, they employed these questionable individuals and they employed questionable means to achieve their goals. No surprise there. They led a mob to the home of a man by the name of Jason, where Paul and his team were staying, because they wanted the crowd to abuse and possibly even kill Paul and Silas. That's the high cost of saving lives. They dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials. Why? Because they're unable to find Paul and Silas. They go after him. Guilt by association, if you will. And they abuse them instead. Notice that they describe Paul and Silas as notorious troublemakers. Isn't it interesting that we kind of get the moniker or the tag of being a troublemaker, and yet most of the trouble that happens around us is others causing it against us. But that's what happens. That's the cost of saving lives. Paul and his team had a reputation, but it was really everyone else that caused the problems. They accused Jason of doing the worst possible thing imaginable, welcoming Paul and Silas into his home, which isn't bad at all. Hospitality is held at a premium in this culture. It doesn't matter. They didn't didn't like Paul and Silas. When they don't like somebody, everyone who's associated with that person is considered evil and wicked as well. They accused them all of being insurrectionists against the Roman government. That's another phrase we see thrown out there. You're an insurrectionist. Depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on, you're an insurrectionist, otherwise you're a peaceful protest. So that's, that's, we know. Listen, you're going to get angry about it, fine. But just recognize that's the cost. That's the price tag. Now, these accusations threw the city into turmoil. They made Jason and the, and the other protesters, excuse me, brothers, um, these, these brothers came out. Jason is there. The protesters, the rioters, they take them out. And then these men have to post bond. And, and then they release them, which it, now they have to put their money out there to secure their freedom. And so this is what these rioters did to this guy who wasn't really doing anything, as far as I can tell, other than showing hospitality to Paul and Silas. So this effectively prevented Paul and Silas from continuing to minister in the city. It shut it down. But they had a few good weeks and saw a lot of fruit. And so the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea for their safety. They had to. And what the Lord did is he used the opposition and the persecution to confirm that it was time for them to leave. See, sometimes you do the best you can. You reach as many as you can. Then the opposition begins. And guess what happens? You have to leave whether it's a job or a school or a neighborhood or a ministry, you do what you can. Well, they waited until nightfall so that they could leave the city without being noticed. And they traveled to Berea, which is about 60 miles southwest of Thessalonica. Now, what I do want to point out here, and uh, I do want to mention this because you might be thinking that these men 
when they experienced this, walked away thinking, man, that was horrible. I'll never do that again. You'd be wrong because Paul later writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 1 and 2. And this was his recap, his summary, his synopsis of what took place. When he writes to them, he says, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Can I hear an amen? Amen. See, so many times we are disliked or attacked verbally or otherwise, and we think, oh, I failed. No, 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 not at all. You only fail when everyone likes you and you never say anything worth listening to. When you will not, when you will not pay the high cost of saving lives. When you won't do that, that's when you're a failure. Well, we do know this about the Thessalonians. Paul wrote to them later to encourage them and to address concerns and questions. And we have those books. We've studied them before. He sent Timothy to Thessalonica later on from Athens shortly after he fled the city. So again, they're, they're sending their ministry team to different places to make sure that these people are okay. Uh, he was actually later on in Corinth when Timothy returned, and then he wrote another letter, Second Thessalonians, and uh, that was just a few months after his first epistle. So as you study those epistles, that will give you context for why and when they were written. And those are among Paul's earliest writings. Well, he would later visit that city two more times on his third missionary journey. So they have hardly abandoned them, but they did have to leave. Finally, I want to close with this last place they go to. It's just a brief account, but they go to Berea. And we, we learn in verses 10 through 12 that as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. You might say these guys are gluttons for punishment, right? I mean, you know what's going to happen, right? Well, maybe you don't. Let's see. Now, the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was, uh, said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. I would say that went pretty well. There's our happily ever after moment, isn't it? Of course, that's not the end of the story. But for now, let's understand, he goes and does the same exact thing that he had done in Thessalonica. Well received by the Jews and the Greeks. But we're told there that they were a little bit more noble in this, that they didn't just listen to what Paul said. They received the message without hesitation, but then they went back and they studied the scriptures to daily, it says, to confirm the truth of Paul's preaching. I've said this to you before. Every one of you should study the scriptures to see if what I'm saying or anyone here in this church is saying from God's word is true. I challenge you, I encourage you to search the scriptures daily. And if I or anyone else here says something that doesn't line up with God's word, you bring it to our attention, please. That's of noble character. Don't just listen to pastors and leaders because they they appear smarter than everyone else. No, listen, but then listen with that ear that says, you know, I'm going to check that out later. Pastor Tim said this about that, and you know what? I'm going to go back and look it up. Wonderful. I encourage it. In fact, please do that. You'll learn more that way. So that's what was true about the Bereans. But a large number of Greeks, prominent women, prominent Greek men, 
Well, they're all believing. It's going just like the last time. But here's the thing. There doesn't seem to be any problem there. And all of a sudden we read, verse 13, When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. And the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And the men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. The very same thing happened. The enemies of the gospel showed up. And what's interesting here is it it wasn't even those within Berea. It was those from Thessalonica starting trouble again. There's a really great word in Spanish, intromentio. And that's the word. Somebody that gets involved in something they got no good business being involved in. It's a great word, and it describes these people. They weren't content to just start trouble in their own city. They wanted to start trouble in other cities. And we see a lot of that today. Well, again, they experienced opposition in Berea and were forced to leave the city. Now, the Jews in Thessalonica traveled to Berea in order to start a riot. They literally went there with that intent. This had happened to them when they were in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, in the city of Lystra. The same thing happened there. And their goal was to prevent Paul and Silas from continuing to minister in Berea. That's the cost. You are going to experience significant and severe opposition to the gospel. Now, well, now you know that, if you didn't already. Now, what they did is they had Silas and Timothy stay there in Berea to minister to this newly formed fellowship. So you got Luke, where you got Luke and Philippi, right? Later on, we'll find out that uh, Timothy will go back to Thessalonica, but for now, Silas and Timothy are in Berea. So there's a team of four, and they're, they're, they're spending time in each of these cities because they don't want to abandon these precious people. But where does Paul go? Paul has to go, he has to be escorted, all the way to Athens. They bring him to Athens, Now, Athens was a famous city. Everyone's probably familiar with that city in Greece. We'll talk more about that next week. But before Paul headed out and sailed off to Athens, what he did was he told his escorts, look, I want you to go back and I want you to tell Silas and Timothy to come here as soon as they can. Do what you need to do and get here as soon as you can. And that opens up the ministry to Achaia, which is southern Greece, which is where Athens and later Corinth are. The point is that there was nothing that stopped Paul and his team from doing what God had called them to do. There was literally nothing. I mean, if that wasn't going to stop them, what would? These guys are unstoppable, unflappable. They weren't going to be dissuaded from doing what God had called them to do. They knew firsthand the high cost of saving lives, but they knew that saving lives was worth it. Do we? Lord Heavenly Father, there is a price, and in our flesh we're probably not willing to pay it. But by your Spirit's power and by your strength, may we willingly offer our lives to you to be used to preach the truth. And may it never even enter our mind to change what we say simply because someone might not like it or someone might be jealous of us or someone may not agree with us. For if our ancestors in Christianity had felt that way, we wouldn't be here worshiping God. Lord, we're not interested in using force. We're not interested in saying things that are hurtful or harmful or hateful.
but we are interested in saving lives. And sometimes a surgeon has to make cuts, and sometimes a doctor has to reset bones, and sometimes those messages are difficult, and sometimes the the message of the gospel causes pain, but only so that it can bring healing. May we share the message of your gospel by faith, knowing that in all things you're glorified and that you work through the lives of those that are willing to live their lives for you. May you use us mightily to save those around us who need to be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.